Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to this uh, I think very special uh, event organized by the LSE European Institute uh, in partnership uh, with uh, APCO uh, Worldwide. Um, it is, uh, I think, one going to has every prospect of being one of the high points of the, uh, uh, of the LSE uh, Literary uh, Festival. Um, our guest today, and the reason you're here, is because we're able to welcome someone who has been crossing borders, the theme of the Literary Festival, as you know, someone who's been crossing borders both literally and metaphorically um, throughout his remarkable career. Uh, career as a journalist, uh, as a commentator, uh, uh, an academic, um, a historian of the present, um, uh, a phrase which was coined by uh, George Kennan, no less, um, in the context of, uh, of our guest, Tim Garton-Ash, uh, which almost seems to have entered the language, this idea of um, a historian uh, of the present. Um, his canvas has been uh, the whole continent uh, of, of Europe in its very wider sense, including its uh, problematic uh, borderlands, uh, as well uh, as the Central Europe, which perhaps most readily we associate uh, him with. Um, but of course, he's also travelled and trained his eye and sharpened his pen uh, well beyond uh, Europe uh, as well. Timothy Garton Ash is a professor of European Studies in the, Europe, in the University of Oxford. Uh, he is Isaiah Berlin Pref Professorial Fellow at uh, St Anthony's College, uh, Oxford. And is also a senior fellow, fellow of the um, Europe of the Hoover uh, Institution at Stanford University. Um, he's the author of um, some nine books of political writing, uh, including um, collections of essays. Um, and and I think, without exaggeration, one can say that in his essays, uh, in his journalism, and his uh, and his other books, he can be truly be said to have borne witness to Europe's. Uh, transformation uh, over the last uh, 30 years. Um, I think everyone who is familiar um, with Tim Garton Ash's writing, including perhaps through his regular contributions to the New York R Review of Books, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and of course also his uh, very widely syndicated uh, weekly column uh, in The Guardian. Um, I think everybody who's read his, his writing uh, knows of that, of his extraordinary ability to, uh, to narrate uh, in a pacey uh, and compelling uh, way, uh, to render his uh, to render his protagonists with almost with a, a novelist's uh, eye, and of course to capture the spirit of a time and a place. And I think the result is something something much more than reportage, because all the time, almost imperceptibly, um, the significance of the events he is describing is being is being disclosed, and the reader is made aware of deeper processes afoot without the, sort of the author trying to explain these didactically um, or courting hubris with rash predictions, and I think this is a, a very rare gift. I myself first became aware of Tim Garton Ash uh, through the gripping articles he used to write for The Spectator uh, in the 1980s, The Spectator where he was foreign editor uh, at the time, and in which he laid out, in whose pages he laid out the slow implosion of... Um, communism behind the Iron Curtain. And of course, with his close relationships and friendships uh, with political dissidents, he was able to penetrate uh, more deeply than most. Very briefly, among his, um, his, among his many books, um, one should mention perhaps in particular, uh, We the People, the Revolution of 1989 as witnessed in Warsaw, 
Budapest, Berlin, and Prague. Um, uh, in Europe's Name, Germany and the Divided Continent, which came out in 1993. Um, History of the Present, a collection of essays from Europe in the 1990s. Free World uh, in 2004, a book which I'm happy to commend we use with my students and a course we do on the West. Um, and perhaps most famously, uh, The File, um, A Personal History, that uh, very gripping account of his, own, uh, of his life as a young man uh, in Berlin, seen from the perspective of the unspeakable Stasi and its own personal file uh, on him. And I believe that book has now been translated into something like 16 languages. Uh, most recently, and I'm very happy to say on sale outside uh, this theater, Tim has given us facts. Facts are subversive, political writing from a decade without a name. And I commend uh, that book to you very enthusiastically indeed. Now, his whole oeuvre, as it were, his whole oeuvre to date, has earned um, Tim the accolade of uh, one of the world's top uh, public uh, intellectuals, that most uh, un-British uh, of creatures, the idea of public intellectual, but who I think, thanks uh, in no small measure to perhaps to this institution and to publications like uh, Prospect and Standpoint, uh, the Royal Society of Arts, Intelligence Squared, any number of literary festivals, um, I think perhaps the British have finally uh, made their peace with. And perhaps uh, we can talk about uh, that particular um, calling, that of the public intellectual, as uh, perhaps uh, one more border uh, that we are uh, crossing uh, today. Among Tim's many honours and awards, uh, we can count the order of merit of, uh, of Germany, of Poland, the Czech Republic, um, and uh, from Her Majesty the Queen, um, the CMG. Now, Tim is going to speak for about uh, 30 minutes, after which I'll put one or two questions uh, uh, to him, but very rapidly, in the spirit of a literary festival, of course, open um, things up to discussion, uh, and I'm sure um, you'll have lots of questions to put to him, um, and uh, it will become as interactive, if you like, as possible. So I think we have every reason to expect a fascinating 90 minutes or so, just under. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I ask you to welcome Timothy Garton-Ash. Thank you very much, uh, Morris. It's, it's um, wonderful to be here at this place, which is a, itself a great example of crossing borders of all kinds. Um, on the intellectual thing, um, you know, Byron said somewhere that um, of the word longer, that um, the, the English have not the word, but they have the thing in some profusion. Uh, and I think that's true of intellectuals. We think of intellectuals as French, but actually we have a great many of them ourselves. We just don't call them that. Now, as, as Morris said, I, I have spent quite a lot of my life, when I come to think about it, crossing actual borders, starting with spending probably in total months of my life standing in that ghastly, smelly porter cabin at Checkpoint Charlie, uh, which was, of course, the crossing between East and West Berlin for foreigners, and thereby the crossing between the Cold War East and the Cold War West, um, staring at a, a framed quotation from Bertolt Brecht, which said, Great Carthage fought three wars. After the first, it was still mighty. After the second, it was still present. After the third, it could nowhere be found. A message to the fascist, capitalist, West Germans to watch out. Um, borders do tell you um, quite a lot about the countries you're, you're leaving and entering. Um, 
I think of the one I mentioned in this book, which was the border crossing to Transnistria, which, as all of you will know, being at the European Institute, is a breakaway parastate uh, in eastern Moldova, just the kind of place I really like. Who, 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 who needs Tuscany when you have Transnistria? Um, and the thing is that although uh, recognized by only a handful of states in the world, although Russia, it has all the paraphernalia of a classic border crossing. It has the control posts, the guards, the MGB in their nice uniforms, um, the insignia, the visa stamps, and so on. And so that, that was a, an enjoyable one. Um, uh, the crossing from Kenya to Tanzania, uh, if you're on safari, uh, uh, instructive in a different way because you're floating along in your Jeep and suddenly say, uh, they say, oh, by the way, now we're in Tanzania. There's no border crossing of any kind. The lions look just the same on one side <laughs> as the other. Um, but there you are in Tanzania and then back in Kenya. Or indeed, arriving at Heathrow, uh, as I did um, once again just a couple of days ago, coming back from Madrid. Um, this is something, and I think it's very interesting, that a lot of continental Europeans always remark on which is the fact that as you arrive at the passport control, what the first thing you see is men and women, black, white, and brown, of all colors and ethnic backgrounds, Sikhs in turbans, Muslim women wearing the hijab, utterly unthinkable in France or Germany or most European countries. And it actually says something, and I think something rather good about this country, um, that that's the first thing you see at the border. So borders are interesting places. I'm going to talk today about two borders of a virtual, not a physical kind. One which at the moment still has lots of minefields on it and a certain amount of sniper fire going regularly across it, but which I believe I want to argue uh, should be more open, uh, more easy to move across, more like what we in Europe call the Schengen frontier, as between France and Belgium or Holland and Germany, and the other, a frontier which at the moment is rather Schengen-like uh, in political writing and which I want to argue should be defended much more fiercely in which I want to play the role of the North Korean frontier guard and shoot anyone who steps across it. The first of these frontiers is described in my title as a border between history and journalism. But actually, more precisely, it's a frontier between academia and the academic writing of history and journalism. Because one of the things I want to argue is that good journalists are often actually working as historians, historians of the present. Now, this is, as I said, a pretty heavily mined and rather tense frontier. It's more like that between Serbia and Kosovo than that between France and Belgium. Um, and I, of course, end up doing 
doing both, being both an academic and, and a journalist, as Morris said. Um, um, Conor Cruz O'Brien, the great Irish historian and journalist who was in this position, um, used to describe this as having one foot in each grave. <laughs> um, a wonderful quote, at least I think he said that, because um, after using this quotation many times, I have to admit, I thought I'd better double-check that he actually said it. So, um, so I wrote to him to check this quotation. Um, but most unfortunately, um, he actually got two feet in one grave before he could answer me. <laughs> so um, I don't know if he actually ever said it, but let us, let us for this purpose attribute it to him. Uh, Raymond Aron is said to have said when he was rather irritated by something Raymond Aron had written in Le Figaro, he is said to have said that professor at Le Figaro, that journalist at the Sorbonne, again, I'm not sure if he ever actually said it, but I'm sure that someone has privately said of me, that journalist at Oxford, that professor at The Guardian, because there is a lot of tension along this frontier. Anyone who has been in a university search committee for an academic job knows that if someone on that committee says, yes, his work is rather journalistic, <laughs> kiss of death, I see Simon Glendinning nodding, absolute kiss of death, but equally, if you've been in an editorial conference at a newspaper and someone says of a piece, mm, rather academic, <laughs> straight for the spike, no chance at all. And I want to argue that this tension, um, we could perhaps in discussion talk a bit more about why that tension is there, is particularly today extremely silly and extremely counterproductive. And that this frontier should be much more open and much more fluid. This is not to argue that all academic historians should be journalists or all journalists academic historians, but that there is a huge area of fruitful interchange. And that the differences between the qualities of good history and good journalism are, in my view, actually very small. The differences in the vices of bad history, bad academic history, and bad journalism is enormous. So it's, as it were, think of it as a triangle in which at the top, in the best of good journalism and the best of good academic contemporary history, uh, you meet. But as you go down to the worst, um, you diverge because, of course, the qualities of bad scholarship are over-specialized, narrow, profoundly unrealistic accounts of, as it might be, the hermeneutics of plowshares in Tuscany between 1357 and 59. <laughs> the qualities of bad journalism, as we all know, are sensationalist, sex and violence-packed fiction, uh, as in many a story in The Sun or The Daily Mail, you know, asylum seekers eat swans and that kind of story. 
But the qualities of good journalism and good history are, I submit, very similar. Um, a determination to get at all the available sources. A scrupulous, rigorous, and critical approach to the evidence, however collected. A um, um, what the Germans called Einfühlungsvermögen, or universal sympathy, an attempt to get inside the experience, not just of those you automatically sympathize with, as it might be the demonstrators on Tahrir Square, but of all sides that you're writing about. Um, an attention to logic, the avoidance of the correlation cause fallacy. Um, uh, um, uh, uh, a, an attention to literary style, um, vivid, interesting, and clear writing. Um, all these qualities, I suggest, characterize both good academic contemporary history and good journalism, um, and there is no clear line between them. Now, um, as uh, Morris mentioned, I myself try and write something which George Kennan christened history of the present. Um, and of course, traditional academic historiography, although please note, only since the early 19th century, only since the establishment of so-called the German school of so-called scientific historiography, uh, is extremely skeptical of that claim um, for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, the claim is that the sources are not available to write that history, that you have to wait your 30 or 40 or 50 years until you can go into the archives and read the papers of the Quai d'Orsay or the Foreign Office or something. This seems to me ever less true, even before WikiLeaks. I mean, the truth is that the problem of the contemporary historian is not the paucity of sources, but the surfeit of sources, the sheer profusion of material, which comes out very soon after the event. Um, and if you take, for example, the Iraq War, even before WikiLeaks, um, partly because of the many official inquiries, uh, which showed us, you know, in facsimile, on the web, the annotated emails between Jonathan Powell, David Manning, and Tony Blair, there was, I submit, relatively little, relatively little, that we did not know within a few years of the events. Um, we knew about Curveball even before someone found him and interviewed him. Um, I don't think there are going to be many huge surprises uh, coming out of the archives. So that I think the paucity of sources, one of the traditional objections, is... <coughs> Uh, 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 an objection of diminishing force. Um, the most compelling objection to trying to write the history of very recent events is, of course, that we don't know their long-term consequences and therefore their historical significance. And that is simply true. Uh, 1989 is a very good example of um, we just passed the 20th anniversary of 1989 
And so one asks oneself, what do we know more now that we didn't know then? Despite the opening of the archives, there isn't actually all that much of major importance, about, even about Soviet East European relations, that we didn't pretty much get at the time or about American policy. Some important details, but nothing of major significance, I would say. No revelations. But what nobody, but nobody could have guessed, could have imagined, I think, in 1989, was today's China, with its model of Leninist capitalism. No one could have imagined. I mean, the feeling was... You know, that communist parties were finished, that the Chinese, and this is a feeling of the Chinese communists, of course, themselves, would be struggling to hold on to power. Nobody imagined that precisely because they systematically learnt the lessons of the collapse of communist parties in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, and we know this, there's a great book by David Shambor, which I commend to you, which actually shows how they systematically learned from the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe to create this unique amalgam, which I call Leninist capitalism. Um, so that, it seems to me, is a classic example of a long-term, unpredicted and unpredictable consequence of an event where you do actually have to wait your 20 years or 25 or 30 years. <coughs> Although, of course the kaleidoscope never stops turning. And it may be that in another 20 years, when the Chinese Communist Party has actually yielded to a more democratic system because of the pressures from a growing middle class and the openness that globalization demands, and that's not a prediction, but if that were to happen, then the kaleidoscope would turn again and we'd have another sort of interpretation so that Zhou Enlai was not entirely wrong in his famous answer about the French Revolution. It's a little too soon to say. So that's, and one has to acknowledge it freely, what the eyewitness, the historian of the present, doesn't have. That's the great drawback. But against the historian who starts work 30 years later, your great advantage is that you know what it was like to be there what it felt like, what it smelt like. By the way, the sense of smell is a Cinderella among the senses. Historians and novelists describe brilliantly what it looked like, what it sounded like. They can make some attempt of what it felt like. But the sense of smell, which I have to tell you as someone who's traveled much in the Balkans and Eastern Europe, is a not unimportant part of the experience. Um, that combination of stale sweat and cigarette smoke as well as other nameless smells um, uh, that is something that gets uh, almost entirely lost but also more seriously what you know is what people at the time did not know namely what's going to happen tomorrow uh, I can tell you, if you read the history books about the Polish elections on the 4th of June 1989, they all tell the story as if solidarity was bound to win. 
and the communists were bound to lose dramatically and therefore concede power. I sat up late that night with the leaders of Solidarity, drinking vodka. Nobody knew who was going to win. They had absolutely no certainty. They did not know the result. And so the, what you have, the great danger for the historians starting 30 years later, is what Henri Bergson called the illusions of retrospective determinism. That almost irresistible temptation to believe, even if you fight against it, even if you have great professors who teach you to fight against it, to sort of feel that what happened had to happen, or at least was likely to happen, that history is somehow a straight road leading down from one thing to another, which it isn't at every point, including every point in 1989 and every point in Tunisia and Egypt and in Morocco and in Algeria, one hopes, tomorrow or the day after there will be all sorts of possibilities open. And as a historian of the present, as the eyewitness, you have that sense. So much of what actually happens in the past disappears immediately down the drain, like bathwater, is never captured by anyone. It's simply lost. And so when historians modestly say, um, we're kind of writing the first draft of history. This is a, a phrase that is quite often heard. I think they're actually understating what a good, well-qualified, well-informed eyewitness in the right place at the right time, speaking the languages, knowing the actors can do. Because what you are is actually what historians call a primary source. You are the source from which history will be written. So to say the first draft suggests that then there's going to be the second draft, which is a bit better, and then the third and the fourth. It's not actually like that. I would submit that the first draft, so-called, when it's written by a qualified, eyewitness, qualified and reliable, credible eyewitness, has this unique quality. And I think that in 50 years' time, the books that people should want to read are actually the first draft still, and then the 14th draft, right? It's the first and the 14th. That's to say, the latest version with the, all the latest scholarship and the very original eyewitness account. This may sound like Apologia Pro Vita Sua, but there we are. Anyway, but, but I do qualify it. Assuming that witness is doing his or her job properly, and to do that, it's not enough just to be there. And I have to say that we've had, I think, a little example of this just over the last few weeks in the reporting, particularly from Egypt. It is not, not enough simply to be there on your hotel roof along above Tahrir Square, speaking to camera, um, speculating as you and I could speculate sitting in a pub in London. That's not enough. You actually have to have some value added down on the ground. Um, Orwell somewhere has a nice distinction between 
the eyewitness and the eyewitness spelled capital I witness. And we have a fair amount in our time of the capital I witness. No names, no pack drill. Um, you do actually have to go out and do the eyewitnessing as well. But still, I think that is a unique value added, and that's something I certainly try to do and enjoy doing. Of course, the other objection, and, and I hope in discussion you'll come back to me with more objections, but the other objection classically made is, well, listen, you're far too parti pris. You're so personally involved in this offence. You're partisan. Um, you know what? Round and Freeman, when they talked about the Norman context, conquest uh, in the 19th century, were pretty partisan. Taine and Michelet, uh, Trevor Roper and Richard Cobb were pretty partisan. All historians are in some sense always, as we know, writing the history of their own times. So partisanship is not the exclusive province of those who are actually there. But yes, of course, there's a particular business about getting directly emotionally involved with the people you're writing about. That's true. My answer to that is twofold. First of all, as I said a moment ago, you have to redouble your efforts to be fair, to be rigorous, to try and listen to all sides. And that's something I've always very consciously tried to do, to go off and talk to the Shazi informers as well as the victims of the Shazi, to talk to, you know, as it might be the military and the secret police in Egypt as well as the people on the square. That, that's number one. The other thing uh, is very simple. It's to be clear <coughs> about where your sympathies lie, to be clear where your heart is, to level with the reader. This is all about your contract with the reader. And the classic example of that, the model for me, is George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia, where he says, he says in so many words, beware of my prejudices. Beware of the partiality of the vision. Know that I only saw a small corner of events. And in effect, he almost says, don't believe me. And because he says, don't believe me, we do believe him. Um, and that's, for me, almost a model of that kind of political writing. And with that, I turn to the second frontier. This is a tale of two frontiers. Okay, And this is the one I want to defend like a North Korean frontier guard. This is the frontier between fact and fiction, or more precisely between the literature of fact and the literature of fiction. The literature of fact is a term which is used for non-fiction in Polish and some Scandinavian languages, and I think it's a very nice term because it is a literature, undoubtedly. Um, and it seems to me that here, it's the other way around. People are crossing far too freely across this frontier in infotainment, in drama documentary. There are courses at American universities where you can learn to write creative nonfiction. Hmm. Now, this is not just a matter of the famous cases of literary fraud, which I think not coincidentally often have to do with very dark events of human suffering. Benjamin Wilkomirsky's Fragments, a famous case 
of a so-called Holocaust memoir, which turned out to be totally invented. Um, Yezhi Kosinski's, or if, if you're in America, Jersey Kosinski's, uh, The Painted Bird, which is an interesting case because it was a novel, but he let it be known that it was based on his own experience as a young Jewish boy separated from his parents in Poland during the war, in hiding, uh, struck dumb by the anti-Semitism of the Polish peasants, thrown into a slurry pit. None of it happened. It wasn't true at all. He made it up. And when he was found out, he said, I love this quotation, he said, I aim at truth, not facts, and I'm old enough to know the difference. Right, but I want to argue that sticking to the facts when you say you're writing nonfiction really does matter. And another example, and in my view a very serious one, of such transgression um, is Richard Kapuscinski, who will be well known to many of you, probably the most influential writer of political reportage in the last 20 years. I mean, someone who was a very serious contender to get the Nobel Prize for Literature. But there was always, in those wonderful books, The Shah of Shahs and The Emperor, this uneasy feeling one had that it was so exotic and so extraordinary that had he maybe gilded the lily a bit, had he made it up along the way. I actually have an essay in this book, Facts Are Subversive, written 10 years ago, where I say that with Kapuscinski, you have the uneasy feeling that he's wandering from the Kenya of fact to the Tanzania of fiction and back again. Last year, a Polish biography of Kapuscinski was published by a, a disciple of Kapuscinski, a journalist who'd started out as, as a disciple of his. And what it shows us is devastating, which is that Kapuscinski made this up big time. He describes things as happening to him that did not happen to him. They happened to other journalists who he met in the bar. He rearranges chronology. There are events he ascribes that don't, you never took place. He made up quotations. Um, I mean, it's actually really quite shocking. And I want to argue that precisely when you are the eyewitness of serious events, wars, revolutions, attempted genocide and the like, you have an absolute responsibility to stick to the facts. By the way, um, this business of, of journalists making it up, um, there's just been a, if you read the latest Private Eye, a, a wonderful example um, I don't know how many of you. Are there many private eye readers in the room? Yes. yes, quite a few. Well, you may have seen. If you look at Street of Shame, there's a wonderful story uh, about the Mail on Sundays correspondent who filed some superb, incredibly vivid, gripping uh, eyewitness reports from Tunisia, from the Jasmine Revolution. And they, his, his, his editors got so excited that they, um, they sent... Um, they sent a photographer to be photographed with him at the scene 
our man in Tunis gets the story and beats the competition. When the photographer started looking for this guy, um, it turned out that the hotel had never heard of him. He'd never checked in. And then they went back to the airline and he'd been a no-show. And he'd been filing all this copy from his home in France. <laughs> this is absolutely fantastic. I, some of you will know Evelyn Moore's Scoop. Do you know that great book? Well, you remember Jake's, the great American correspondent, who ends up in the wrong country, where there isn't a revolution, files this brilliant copy. As I sit, the rattle of gunfire answering my typewriter as I type, the child spread eagle like a doll in the gutter, and so on and so forth. <laughs> And then there is a revolution. <laughs> um, but this is life imitating art. So there's a fair amount of that. And I think, I, I just want to say that I think that sticking to the facts is for the journalist as for the academic historian, not just an intellectual but a, but a moral imperative. But before I say that, let me, let me just say that one has to concede quite a lot to those who say um, look there is no fundamental essential difference between the literature of fact and the literature of fiction we do work in many ways like novelists we select we choose we compose stories we tell stories with a beginning a middle and an end and there are stories. Um, we imagine. You have to imagine what it's like to be the woman in Kosovo who has just lost her child to a Serbian militia. You have to imagine what it's like to live in Burma today. You select. So in many ways, we are storytellers. Also, let me not naively suggest that what we are getting at is simply truth. That is not my claim. My claim is that there are facts. These facts are generally small things, but they are round and hard. And the pictures we build as writers of the literature of fact are like mosaics built from these small, hard, mosaic stones of fact. So that the two different writers can take the same mosaic stones and make quite different pictures. But if, in fact, there were no blue or green mosaic stones, then you cannot paint a picture of the sea because you haven't got any blue or green to paint it with. There is a limit to what you can do. It is a fact whether someone signed an undertaking to be an informer for the Stasi or not. That can be checked out. If need be, you can do a test on the paper and the ink. How you understand that fact, how you interpret it, how you judge it, that's entirely a matter for interpretation. But there is a small, round, hard fact there and even great writers can trip over such facts. And I have in this book a good example of this, which is a case of the great German novelist Gunther Grass, who, as you will know, tripped over 
the small round but very hard fact that he had been a member of the Waffen-SS as a very young man in the Second World War, something which made a mockery of his denunciation of Ronald Reagan and Helmut Kohl going to the cemetery in Bitburg um, at which were buried, amongst others, some very, very young German men who had been conscripted into the Waffen-SS, that is to say, young men just like Gunter Grass. That's a fact. There are also slightly larger facts, like the fact, for example, that the French prime and foreign ministers took paid holidays courtesy of the Egyptian and Tunisian authorities, or the fact that Saddam Hussein did not have weapons of mass destruction. And if you doubt that facts are subversive, then please imagine that just before the vote in the House of Commons on Britain going to war in Iraq, I don't think it would have changed the story in America, or at least would not have changed the decision, but in Britain, before that debate, we had known the facts about actually the lack of hard intelligence on WMD in Iraq. I think the vote would have gone a different way. Britain would not have gone to war in Iraq, and we'd had a very different story. So facts are subversive. Now, let me throw this open with one last thought, which is, how do you defend this frontier of fact, particularly in writing about foreign affairs, when the commercial realities of journalism are being transformed such that even very great newspapers are closing down all their foreign bureau. The amount of professionally reported foreign news is shrinking by the week. The very profession of foreign correspondent, with all its faults, is virtually ceasing to exist. And at precisely a time when, because of globalization, we need to know more about the rest of the world, we have ever less professional reporting of it and have to rely on bloggers and citizen journalists and people with mobile phones. I hope we can talk about that in the discussion, but one just thought I want to, to leave you with, to throw this open, is that there's a connection between these two frontiers and that actually one way to defend the frontier, the frontiers of fact, particularly in writing about the rest of the world, is to throw open the frontier between academia and journalism. For academics, if I may put it this way, to lose a bit more of their virginity and to get more involved in the ongoing, current, online discussion of foreign affairs. Um, uh, by the way, a very good example of what this can bring is, I think, the website Open Democracy, which uses academics, including many from LSE, brilliantly to comment on current events, because the truth is what we have in our universities is incredible resources of detailed specialist knowledge of precisely the kind um, that are now disappearing in the journalistic community, assuming anybody knows what a journalist is anymore. So that 
I mean, I throw this open as a question to you because I don't have an answer to this question about how we do defend the frontier of fact, but I wonder if maybe one answer to it lies in throwing open that frontier between academia and journalism, as LSE does so brilliantly. Thank you very much. Well, uh, Tim, thank you for a wonderfully rich and uh, provocative uh, uh, set of thoughts and uh, observations. Um, uh, we've got about uh, 40, 40 odd minutes uh, now. I just want to sort of exercise. Do you want to take the uh, from, from there, sit, or do you want to sit entirely, entirely actually, up? Actually, if you don't mind, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll stay entirely up to, entirely up to you. I'll sit if I may. Uh, absolutely agree with what you were saying about um, yes, dismantling the barriers between academia and journalism. I mean, the one great obstacle. I mean, first of all, there is this, the sniffiness among some academics about what is described, what uh, you refer to. Well, it's a bit journalistic. It's a bit descriptive. Descriptive uh, is a critical comment one expect to put on essays of students who don't seem to have really uh, dug uh, deep enough. But of course, there are different ways of digging deep, um, and of course, a sort of a hermeneutical hermeneutical sort of approach to uh, the social sciences as well as humanities. It's about trying to elicit uh, meaning and understanding what is really going on. Um, and I don't think journalists should have a problem with that. The, the, the main problem arises because of the obsession in academia with so-called theory. And if you haven't got a theory to explain something, you are doing journalism. You're doing a reportage. Um, and this, the arid, to my mind, obsession with theory, more often than not disappearing up its own derriere, is a serious... Uh, is one of the main impediments uh, to academia actually wrestling, um, uh, acad academia and journalism um, uh, sort of consummating a sort of marriage which I think really uh, um, should, uh, should, be, should be taking place. So I'd be curious to know your thoughts on that. And my one other observation, this gets back to um, really the, the question, the calling, the vocation of the, um, of the uh, uh, academic uh, and, and the journalist. Uh, there are powerful forces in society which are for specialization, for professionalization, for building sort of uh, digging, so even deeper silos than we've had in the, in the past, all in this under the guise of um, sort of rigor and as I say, of, of professionalization. Um, it's a concept of, of knowledge just as, as training. Uh, it's also about it's also about defending one's own professional patch, I guess, and making and erecting sort of entry barriers to it. Um, but it seems to me, doing, actually, it's, it's something which is really very corrosive because it is undermining the traditional Western idea of, uh, of a liberal education. Well, the idea that the educated uh, generalist, which is something particularly in Anglo-Saxon culture, I'd say particularly in Britain, has been a very powerful and attractive idea in the past. Um, and it really, I really wonder whether in 10 years' time uh, it's going to be uh, possible for any bright person in the early stage of their career to build a reputation as a journalist and as an academic. Or are the silos going to be simply so deep and we will so given up our idea of a liberal education? Um, uh, I, I think this trend is, is, re is remorseless, actually. Uh, and it's, it's starting to happen in, in Britain where the idea of the educated journalist has traditionally been a very strong one as technical and vocational knowledge and specialization starts to take over. And I wonder if, you're as, uh, if you see it as worrying a, a trend, as, as I certainly do. You mean it's no longer possible to have one foot in each grave? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, um, I, mean, I mean, first of all, 
I, I really do believe that it's important for people to learn a scholarly discipline, an intellectual discipline. In other words, I, I do think that both interdisciplinarity and this kind of frontier crossing or frontier exchange is something to do when you've got a solid grounding in a good academic discipline. And, and call me old-fashioned, but I do think that. Um, so, you know, this is not a plea for a kind of merging of universities and journalism. It's a, it's a, it's a symbiosis in which, in which they do, do different things, particularly, I would say, at undergraduate level particularly at undergraduate level. I think at the postgraduate level you can get more, more, more mixed up, um, or mixing up, and mixed up possibly. Um, um, the the specialization point, I was actually thinking about this on the train down this morning, and I think the, the irony is that in this respect, Journalism and academia are moving in precisely opposite directions. That is to say, at the London Times 40 years ago, you had the College of Commons, who were the people, and I actually wrote Leaders for the Times in the mid-80s, and it was just about disappearing. But, but they were still, who were tremendous experts on the Arab world or on Russia or on Germany and who had a whole supporting apparatus of which a university could be jealous uh, and sub-editors who spent a whole afternoon um, checking what's the right spelling of the word you know, Tariel, Tagiel, whatever it might be. So you had tremendous specialist ability in journalism and, and considerable academic generalists, right? Now what you have, you have precisely the over-specialization which you're talking about, which is partly a result of the sheer growth in size of academia since the 1960s. So they're just, I mean, this is very, very simply put, there almost aren't enough topics to go round in some subjects, so you have to go narrow. Plus, um, leaving aside the postmodern derriere, um, <laughs> The, the thing you rightly identified, which is the obsession, which starts actually with, with sort of, well, I'm not, it certainly is characteristic of, 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 of the claims of Geschichtswissenschaft in 19th century Germany, um, and then goes from discipline to discipline, the felt compulsion to establish your credentials as science and as hard science which produces in the meantime, with apologies to any political scientist in the room, the absurdities of rational choice theory, which is now spreading like a disease through the political science departments of North America and even leaping across the Atlantic, right? So, I mean, I think that is a, that is a problem. Now, in journalism, it's the precise opposite. The specialist is disappearing. Even the professional journalist is disappearing. Is a blogger a journalist? Is a citizen journalist who has no professional training, no journalistic employer, no NUJ card? Are they a journalist or aren't they? What does it mean to be a journalist? So it's moving into ever more, as it were, generalist, even stroke amateur participatory forms. And it seems to me, and, and I hope other people will have some thoughts on this, 
I mean, the really interesting question for us is how do you bring those two things together? Um, how do you bring to bear the increasingly narrow, specialized knowledge of the academic, which may also mean very deep, uh, with the on-the-spot, um, uh, untrained eyewitness with a mobile phone at the demonstration. Can I get to give you one sh short example of where I think we've fallen down terribly? The Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, right? How many columns have you read speculating, nay, asserting with complete confidence that the Muslim Brotherhood is exactly like Iran 1979 and about to cut off people's hands as soon as they gain power, or a bunch of, a bunch of wonderfully soft uh, Turkish-style Islamists who will respect all the rules of democracy. How many pieces have you read which have actually gone out there and combined on-the-spot reporting with the history of the Muslim Brotherhood. We have people in Oxford, I'm sure you do here, who've written whole theses on the history of the Muslim Brotherhood. And there are actual people. I have actually once visited the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Egypt um, in 2007. Uh, it was, as you know, banned. It was a strictly banned organization. But someone said to us, oh, that's fine, yeah, we'll, we'll set this up. And you uh, we come to this address, and you go to an address in a very nice apartment building in the center of Cairo and there's a large wooden door and it says on the door Muslim Brotherhood <laughs> please ring <laughs> so much for being banned and in you go and you can talk to the people right and, and it, very instructive it was too I took my wife with me because we were there together she was un, no hijab unveiled um, and it was very interesting and there was this moment <coughs> when we arrived and met the deputy head, leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, and I wanted to see if he'd shake hands with my wife. So I just stood back a little, mm. and his hands sort of <laughs> shook like this. It hesitated, and then finally he did it. He actually shook hands with her, and then so on, and we had a, we had a, had a conversation. But that's by the by. Uh, but it's a classic example, I just want to say, where you could bring together academic and journalistic uh, uh, um, practices to illuminate something I think very important. Thank you very much. Excellent. Um, okay. Um, over to uh, over to you all. Um, uh, if you could um, signal that you wish to speak, and then I think we have a microphone that will be brought to you. Um, Richard Bronk at the front. And if, it, if in each instance you could say who you are, where you're from, um, it just uh, uh, enriches everyone's experience to know who's here. Um, uh, should we take, um, I'd I think we will cluster questions, even though that makes for perhaps over-pithy answers, uh, Tim, if that's okay. Uh, so there, uh, there was somebody at the back who had their hand, hand raised as well. Uh, well, then we'll take this. Thank, thank you very much. I enjoyed that hugely. Um, two, two things, Richard Bronk is uh, from the LSE. Uh, two things that uh, struck me in, in response to what you said. You said that sympathy was crucial to both the journalist and the academic, a thing I agree with wholeheartedly, and Beatrice Webb, the founder of the LSE, talked about analytical imagination being essential to a good social scientist too. And I wonder what you thought about Adam Smith's view of sympathy in moral judgment, that sympathy is a kind of bifocal vision, which in, means you have to imagine yourself in someone else's shoes, but then stand back and judge 
that vision. It's a sort of bifocal vision. Uh, and the second question was about facts. Um, I, of course, agree with you, as we all would, that sticking to facts is a moral imperative. But I wonder if, um, except for these very hard, small facts you're talking about, facts aren't a little bit more problematic than you say. M.H. Um, Abrams once said, facts are, come from the Latin factor, things made, not found. And it seems to me that almost any fact is really the product of the theory, the interpretation, the construction we put on it. And that's indeed why you need the different lamps, as he would put it, of the different disciplines that uh, you, you so eloquently said we need to, to understand what's going on. So those are my two questions. Okay. Um, any more questions? Um, we'd like to gentleman in the blue shirt. Hi, um, my name is Hassan. I'm doing my PhD research at King's College London, and my topic is uh, subaltern representation in the war of independence in Bangladesh. And um, I found uh, the subaltern history or subaltern contribution has been absent in, in the traditional historiography. So my question is that what should a good journalist, a qualified journalist, um, in other words, reliable journalists should do in order to challenge the traditional historiography. I'm a journalist as well, the, by the, the way. The tradition of, I just didn't hear you, the tradition of? Historiography. Thank you. Um, take one, we'll take more, one more question in this yeah. round. Anyone else like to? The lady, yes, with her hand up there. Just. Um, hi, my name is Jessica. I'm from the European Institute. I study European ideas and identities. Um, you talked about um, how professionally reported news um, has uh, uh, shrinking by the week, you said, I think, um, and how that's been replaced by, by bloggers and sort of social media to some extent. Um, would you be able to speculate where that could lead for us as a society, a sort of best-case scenario and a worst-case scenario of where it could take us. Yeah. So, um, to take those in order, I absolutely, bifocal vision is spot on, and I shall ask you for the reference afterwards. Um, uh, I, I mean, to take an example from my own experience, if I go and talk to Stasi officers or Stasi informers, I have got to be able to try and get into their own subjectivity, uh, their own experience, what it was like for them, and I tried very hard to do that. But at the end of that exercise, I have to step back and make a judgment about the evil they did. So that's, I totally agree. Um, the facts, um, it's interesting, I've had a few of these conversations and there's, there's always that comeback there. It seems to me that it is a fact um, that I'm standing here at the LSE talking to you at 13.03 by the clock at the back of the room. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that seems to me a fact. I don't see that it depends on any particular interpretation. But if you use the Iraq example, yeah. there were bits of intelligence that the construction put on them were radically different depending on the frames of people. Correct. Absolutely correct. But this is where you have to respect 
the modesty of my claim for what counts as fact. Um, in the case of the WMD, um, the facts were what was actually being reported in hard intelligence to the intelligence agencies. And so to speak, what a professional intelligence agency, what credence it would give to a curveball or something. So it, it, you're absolutely right. It wasn't the, at that time, strictly unknowable fact. You could say 100% he had no WMD, but we sure as hell could have known the unreliability of the intelligence. So, I mean, you're quite right to press me. My claim, my epistemological claim for what facts are in this context is quite a modest one. Beyond that, it is a matter of the context and interpretation. Um, this goes to Hassan, to which the answer is very simple. Um, uh, there's a wonderful essay which I commend to you. I'm sure it's, it's taught at LSE by um, the great French historian Renan, which is called What is a Nation? And he says a nation is a community of shared memory and shared forgetting. And he has a famous passage where he says every Frenchman has to have forgotten the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre. In other words, you have to know it was there and then forgotten about it, which is a wonderful construct. And then he goes on to say, he says, and this is why historians are a great threat to the lives of nations, because they challenge and question their dominant myths or it might be to the life of a minority. So that the job of the, the journalist and the historian is to identify those shared myths, those shared areas of forgetting, and then to challenge and question them using the evidence. Uh, finally, on the, the radiant future for journalism, um, I mean, you know, it's, it's actually quite interesting looking at this from, from one part of my life, which is The Guardian, because The Guardian is actually at the cutting edge of all this, because Alan Rusbridger has said, this is the world we're in. Um, there's no point in shutting ourselves off for it, closing our eyes to it, turning our backs to it. We have to throw ourselves into this world of user-generated content, uh, of permanent interaction of blogging and tweeting and Facebook and see what we can make of it and whether we can preserve old journalistic values in new forms and new media, which is, which is the key to it. So he has this idea of mutualization. Not a very elegant term, but what it means is that readers become writers. They become part of the process of producing the content of the newspaper. Um, and the problem there, of course, is one of quality control. A, of quality control, and B, of fragmentation. So the good scenario is we work this model out. Writers become readers. You have citizen journalists all over the world sending in clips and stories, but living up to certain journalistic standards. This content is well edited, and so it's hugely enriched. Okay? The bad scenario is one of total um, subjectivity, trivialization, trash, and fragmentation. So that instead of having common platforms, 
which is what newspapers have traditionally been and good TV channels, everyone has the daily me, right? That's all you've got is so many hundred million versions of the daily me. And it's my little Egypt today or my life today. And that public sphere we all talk about is actually uh, once again utterly fragmented. Uh, and we have no common ground and no verified facts on which to place our feet. Um, I wouldn't bet on the better outcome. Was there um, other questions, um, Tim? There's a question of the gentleman um, who brought up historiography. I, I Can you feel you felt that, 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 was, that was really directed at that? Yes, I can. Okay. Um, we've got time certainly for another round. Um, and so lots of hands ringing up. There's a lady, lady over there. Um, you can start over there. Hi. Ponce Venison, PhD student at the LC. Um, two sort of recent uh, people or incidences sort of popped into my head as you sort of gave your your talk. First was um, Bill Keller from the New York Times's sort of um, sort of narration of how the war blocks worked between uh, he sort of the UK papers and the German papers and how they handled the evidence from the Wiki, WikiLeaks sort of documents and um, sort of in relation to sort of the discussion about you know, why or why journalists don't, or generalists don't enter or are, aren't recruited into the um, sort of uh, journalist uh, profession anymore. I thought of um, the late uh, Tony Jutt and um, sort of his crossing of frontiers after he had sort of, you know, had a lifetime as a, as a European historian and then became a political commentator on sort of revisionist Zionism. And I, I suppose my first question would be, you know, if your concern is about raising or reforming journalistic integrity, um, why it is that perhaps fewer people like Tony Judds and, and academics um, aren't in the journalistic profession, whether it's a, a, a bar or, or what the, why there isn't a pool? And secondly, um, maybe your take on sort of how, how the sort of war blogs people, you know, dealt with the evidence versus maybe what, a, what an academic you know, professional might how they might have handled those um, WikiLeaks. Yes, those those uh, pieces of evidence that um, Bill right. Keller had in his right. his possession. Thanks very much. Um, we'll take a question at the front. Simon Glendening. Uh, hello, uh, Simon Glendening from the LSE. Um, your distinction in the second half on the literature of fact and literature of fiction um, focused at one point on on literary fraud. But one of the themes that sort of bubbles around in that area is also the political lie. And I was uh, reminded of an essay by Hannah Arendt on lying in politics. And she emphasizes the almost ne necessary role of uh, the political lie in totalitarian regimes, a sort of absolute dependency on lying. And in relation to this, a, a theme that came up now and again in your uh, talk was Egypt. And I was wondering whether you felt that contemporary political journalism, particularly through uh, channels like Al Jazeera, has been an important motor in the rise of movements resisting these total effectively totalitarian regimes 
in the Middle East? Because I, I was fascinated myself, watched Al Jazeera every day <laughs> through those 18 days. It was extraordinary uh, professional journalism. Why don't we take those two questions now and then there'll be time for another round. Yeah, I mean, because they're great questions and they both actually fit together very well. I mean, listen, Tony Jatu was a good friend of mine. He's a classic example of, of what's called the public intellectual, although I think that's actually a pleonasm because, in my view, the definition of an intellectual is someone who goes out to a wider public. Um, as Stefan Collini says in his, by the way, very interesting book called Absent Minds about, about British intellectuals. And Collini, you know, says, it's slightly prescriptive but quite useful, is you have to have established some sort of solid specialist credentials in a, in a discipline and in an area, in Tony's case, European history. And then you go out through media of various kinds to speak to a wide audience. And in Tony's case, it was, of course, the New York Review of Books, that great organ. So that actually a lot of this question does come back to the question of the media or the mediums through which you, you reach that audience. Um, because you know, the New York Review is, is actually a unique organ for the sort of um, Anglosphere Anglophone, Anglosphere intelligentsia, and there aren't many like that. And if you didn't have, you don't have a medium like that. You can go out on your blog on the web and be that public intellectual, but the question is who will be listening? Um, now, the, the Bill Keller WikiLeaks thing actually connects to Simon's question because what they have in common is this. The key in both cases was the interaction, actually cooperation, of new and old media, right? So actually in the end WikiLeaks decided it was better for them to go to The Guardian and The New York Times and El Pais and Le Monde and Der Spiegel to these old media because they would have more impact and the old media had the resources and the professional skills to sift the material, research it, put it in context, by the way, anonymize individuals who might be under threat, and so on and so forth. Similarly, I mean, in the case of Tunisia, um, Al Jazeera's coverage, which was crucial, it was a very interesting piece um, in the Cottonwood paper, I think the whole trip the other day, maybe the Guardian arguing that the leader of the Arab world today is Al Jazeera. The Arab world is led by a television station. And what happened is, but, but they didn't, I think their correspondent was banned from Tunisia. They certainly didn't have them in all these cities. They took all this user-generated content, the mobile snaps and the tweets and so on, the YouTube videos, and put it together into a narrative. And they told a narrative of the Arab world shaking off uh, the chains. And that, I think, was hugely powerful. So again, I think it's a, it's a really interesting example of where it's precisely, it's the interaction. It's not, it's not a Facebook revolution, and it's not an Al Jazeera revolution, but it's a Facebook plus Al Jazeera combination that, that makes a difference. Okay, um, another round of questions. The lady there in red. 
Um, sorry, I was pointing to the sort of lady in there. Yes, sorry. Yes, red and, and blue top. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm a PhD candidate in the history department um, studying the war coverage of the wars in Bosnia and Kosovo over the 1990s. And I've come across quite a few accounts where journalists complain that their articles were so heavily edited by their editors back home that their accounts were very unrecognizable by the time they were actually published. And um, I'm wondering whether that's not a very simple reason why historians don't dabble more into journalism because of these editorial policies and their constraints. Very interesting. Thank you. Uh, yes, another question. Lady, yes. Uh, sorry, yes, in the white. No, uh, down here. Hi, um, I'm a master's student here at the LSE, and I wanted to ask you what you think we should now do with Ryszard Kapuscinski's legacy after we found out all the facts about his life. Okay, we'll squeeze in one more um, lady. Who yeah, thank you. Uh, you mentioned about eyewitness, and it seems that previously journalists functions to, as an ambassador to witness something, to tell the people. But now, with the emergence of, you said, the citizen journalist, and lots of people can witness something themselves and to publish. So to what extent that changes or undermines the professional journalism? I mean, uh, will this, like, uh, will this occupation disappear gradually? So, sorry, just, I, I didn't quite understand the question. Could you sh sharpen the question? Yeah. I, d I didn't quite understand the question. The question again is yeah. uh, possible. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people can witness something and to be like a journalist themselves, to publish their voices. So uh, to what extent that changes or undermines their professional journalism? Um, yeah. yeah. You mean self-publishing? Yeah. Well, in a way, yeah. Uh, the, the editors, um, there's one thing worse than having an editor, perhaps, and that's not having an editor. Um, it, it's, a, it's a fair point, and um, I can give you two further examples. One is the reporting of Iraq WMD in the leading American papers. In the New York Times had some very good journalists who knew how feeble the intelligence was. This, this reporting was tucked away on page 14, while on page 1 they had the notorious reports by Judith Miller based on you know, her last conversation with Paul Wolfowitz or Dick Cheney. So those editorial selections uh, can be very damaging, um, although now, because even the New York Times is encouraging its journalists to blog, right? You can then go out there and put it on your blog, and if you get a following, so that to some extent compensates. The other one, which is very close to home in the European Institute, is the reporting of the EU in the British press. And again and again, it's not actually the story by the correspondent in Brussels, even, dare I say, in the Daily Telegraph, because I've talked to the Telegraph correspondents in Brussels, and they complain as bitterly as anyone. It's a version of that story that goes on the front page, uh, rewritten by the deputy news editor with the joint byline, or notably by the Westminster correspondent, because a lot of the absurdity yeah. comes from the Westminster 
spaceship, media political spaceship, um, that does the damage. And it's a first page story that has the impact. Never mind the serious piece of reporting you can find on you know, page 14. So I think, I think those, are, those are serious points. Um, and as I say, I think actually the possibilities of self-publishing, of doing your blog, um, can to some extent compensate for that. And we have interesting examples of people who've really built up their own audience um, as an individual writer, you know, the Drudge Report or whatever it might be. Um, which, by the way, is one reason why proprietors are a bit worried about this idea of micropayments, when you could buy not the whole paper, but just one piece by one writer, because then they might discover that actually people didn't want the whole of the Times. They just wanted Anatole Kaletsky. And so at the end of the, people, at the, end of the day, Anatole could go off and be the daily Kaletsky. Right? And I, I mean, I think he probably could, because he's a wonderful economics columnist, and there are, you know, Tom Friedman could do the same, a number of columnists could do the same. Um, so, so there are kind of interesting possibilities there. But that brings me to the Kapuscinski question, which is very close to my heart. Um, uh, and it's a very difficult one. Um, and it kind of has two parts. Part one is sort of how do we think about Richard Kapuscinski, the writer, t today? And is he diminished, in our view, because these are amazing books? And there are some people who say, um, I mean, Lawrence Weschler, the New Yorker writer, said, um, they're still a wonderful books. They're fantastic books, and you just put them on the fiction shelves, but they're still, you know, The Emperor is the greatest Polish novel of the 1970s. Um, his biographer, as you may know, Artur Domasławski, who wrote this book, he said, well, maybe we should have a, um, a, a separate shelf in the, um, in the bookshop. So it would say, fiction, non-fiction, Kapuscinski, <laughs> which is a, a wonderful idea, the special Kapuscinski shelf. And, you know, Paul Theroux would have to be put in the Kapuscinski shelf. And a few others I could think of, and maybe against their will, would have to be put in the Kapuscinski shelf. But the more serious question is what lessons do we draw out of it? And I think universities that teach creative nonfiction should stop and think very hard. And journalism schools, which is something called narrative nonfiction, which is better but still has this danger, should think very hard. Because if I'm right in making this absolutely rudimentary elementary point, that there is a great, you know, not just political but moral importance to defending the line of facts, then we should do something about it, particularly in a world where there isn't going to be the desk at the New York Times or the BBC. There aren't going to be the sub-editors and the editors to do it for you. So if there's going to be more responsibility on the individual then it's going to be less about rules and mechanisms and more about norms. So promoting these norms of responsibility seems to me to become even more important. Maybe that's something um, LSE could think about too. Thanks very much. Um, 
What is the time? You know what, Tim? I'm going to invite one more question to be uh, lobbed at you just before we don't be able to get, to get full value for you, giving us tremendous time. Um, gentleman here has been uh, patiently. Um, keep it short and short and sweet, please. Um, and then we'll let you go, Tim. Or Only up short. to your two or signing. Uh, yes. Yes, hi. To your uh, signing table. I'm yep. a master's student here at LSE and uh, aspiring journalist as well. But um, for following up on your take on the uh, the Al Jazeera and how they had to unite pieces of information from blogs and tweeters, does this, does this mean that this is going to be the journalist's job from now on? Since we, we see that foreign bureaus are constantly uh, cut, shut down, are we are we going to have to just rely on information from people on the spot and work as a editor from a London or New York bureau? You know what? Nobody knows. Nobody has the least idea where everybody is in the dark. Um, I mean, I think the feeling is that there are going to be these kind of new forms of, of collaboration uh, in which websites, established media are kind of aggregators of user-generated content, bloggers and so on, but also, to some extent, verifiers. Okay, let me, let me give you an interesting point. If you go on the Guardian website, you have two different kinds of content. Content that has been checked and content that has been not checked. And you don't have any little symbol on it to tell you which kind of content you've got. Maybe we need a kind of content like on food you know the health warning says this has been checked by a sub editor and this is just you know free association by anyone particularly anonymous posters I say with some feeling because um, that's another scale of irresponsibility you know the unedited unchecked anonymous poster is, is out there in the sort of 13th circle of of, of journalistic hell. Um, so, so, I mean, I think there are going to be new combinations there, but I really do think, uh, perhaps I can end on this, um, Maurice, because we are in a university and we've talked mainly about journalism. I, I do think imaginative great universities like the LSE or maybe even Oxford um, could, I mean, we actually have an institute for the study of journalism, need to start thinking about this, uh, about ways in which we could help to spread these positive norms um, to people who are not going to be professional career journalists, but are going to do kinds of journalism of part of what they do. I bet, how many people in here have a blog? Let's have a show of hands. How many people blog? Uh, how many tweet? Ah, more still. How many have Facebook page? Ah, well, there you are. Well, you see, so Facebook, there it is, okay? So what happened in Egypt was crucially influenced by Wael Khonim's Facebook page, which had more than 600,000 people on it. How many copies does The Guardian sell? Less than 400,000, going down. 600,000. That's journalism too. You're not going to... It has no structures of, of editing apart from the totally untransparent Facebook community standards, by the way, which are deplorable, but that's another story. So it's going to be about norms, about norms we give ourselves as citizens and as citizen journalists. And I think that's something that, that, that we as universities should, should think some more about. Thanks Can I just much. add to that, Tim? Uh, 
it seems uh, how it behoves all of us to hold um, uh, writers, intellectuals, particularly those who we put on some sort of pedestal uh, and ascribe the role of sort of, or see as sort of a conscience of their time or as a guru or as some sort of intellectual leader in some way, um, uh, to hold them to the highest standards too, because uh, I've been surprised by the ex how, just how indulgent people are prepared to be when, for example, various facts about, say, Edward Said's sort of, um, uh, sort of uh, embroidery of his own, uh, of his own past uh, emerged, or when Lawrence Van der Post uh, and his uh, 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 and uh, some of his writing about the Bushmen of the Kalahari and his ostensible experience with them, um, I'm astounded by the number of people who can say this to and say, well, okay, that's all part of the man, uh, and he was great in all sorts of ways, and we sort of incline to, and, uh, and that actually makes the richness of the man, um, and we shouldn't be too judgmental. Well, I think there's a real danger in that, um, especially with people who we sort of do give that, ascribe that sort of... Uh, that special sort of status to in our national cultural life, we have to hold them to the highest standards as well because it can very easily, fame of course can very easily go to people's heads and they actually think that they are beyond over and above or somehow transcend normal empirical uh, criteria as well as sometimes of, uh, so um, I think we are all in this together as they say these days and we must hold everybody to account and not let anybody off the hook um, so I, just, I, absolutely. Right, and so ends my catechism um, Tim, you've given us a fantastic hour and a half. Uh, you have uh, um, answered the questions in the most interesting way possible. You've drawn on your own experience in the richest way possible. Uh, we've had a tremendous time. We'd love to have you back soon. Uh, thank you so much.